For our 100th episode, it's only fitting that we get audacious, we get big, we get bold, and we give you the pop culture with fanboy and know-it-all top 100 movies of all time. What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. I'm Jake. I am Paul. Welcome back inside our crazy brains for the 100th time. (laughs) The 100th time. Anybody who has listened to all 100 episodes of this podcast, they deserve some sort of medal. Don't you think? Absolutely. A medal of valor. For having to sit through these podcasts, you know? Yeah. I mean, they did it to themselves, but there's medals... All around. Metals all around. Metals Self-inflicted all around. pain and discipline. Maybe a little, maybe a little uh, bottle cap from up we could hand out. You know? I think that would be nice. That would fit within the budget. I'd be down. <laughs> so you let us know. If you've listened to all 100 episodes of Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know It All, you hit us up on Twitter and we'll get you a bottle cap. <laughs> we'll figure it out. Paul will figure we'll it figure out. It out. I'll figure it out. He has a bottle cap somewhere in his house. (laughs) This is a very audacious podcast. I mean, the idea of going through a hundred movies, granted there will probably be a little bit of overlap. We're each doing 50 apiece, but that's a, that's a pretty tall order. I'm, I am both really excited and trembling just a little. That's right. Even though this was Paul's idea, <laughs> and I agreed with it, Paul has been trepidatious the entire way after I agreed. I don't know. Maybe we could do 50. Maybe this could be – Two parts. Two parts, I said. I said we're doing it all at once. <laughs> all at once, Paul. You're a dictator. Now that we're Now that we're moving into the upper echelon of podcasting popularity – We've got, we've got to bring the people what they want, and that's 100 movies at a time. 100 movies at a time. <laughs> this is what we're going to do from now on, just a top 100 list every single episode. <laughs> no, we're not doing that. Paul will not do that, but we <laughs> will do that on this episode. And then, of course, we'll wrap it up the way we love to wrap up this show every single time, the most least important thing. And I think we just have to pause for a one-second moment of Moment of uh, honor for all of you who have listened for 100 episodes. So here it is for you. All right. And now it's time <laughs> to continue on. There was your one second moment of honor. One second. To all 100 episodes. Honor. Seems like we should have applauded or cheered, but it's way too early in the morning to do that. So That's right. We're going to go snake draft style to create the official pop culture with fanboy and know-it-all top 100 movies of all time. I am sure both ways that – uh, Paul and I will be furious about what movies make it into what, you know, into the top 20 or the top 50. And yeah. uh, Your top so 10 is going to just be filled with Brad Pitt movies. I know this already. Brad Paul Pitt, Chris Pratt, that's it. And so without further ado, we welcome you to sit back and enjoy the official unveiling of the top 100 cinematic experiences of all time. As brought to you by Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All.
Who wants to begin this, sucker? You want me to do it? Let's go. All right. I will start off this list. Just to, I always have to do a preamble when we do these these lists, right? Why I chose what I did, how I selected these. They, you know, there's a very big difference in my list between the best movies of all time and my favorite movies of all time. And this sort of blends the two together a little bit for me. So I think that, that your um, line about best cinematic experiences is right on. Right on. That might be the only time that you are right this podcast, but I really did appreciate that. So with that said, number 50, Martin Scorsese's Silence. Ooh, wow. Starting dark. (laughs) Starting dark dark and not particularly enjoyable. (laughs) But it is a great cinematic experience. It's a deep movie. It's really well done. It's a difficult movie to watch, but again, any movie that makes me think for a week after I see it, that's going to make my list. That's a big one. Similar to Paul, I I did blend in here between ones that I really appreciated and ones that I just really enjoyed. Because, hey, if this is pop culture with fanboy and know-it-all, it can't be all the know-it-all froofy flicks that Paul's going to throw in like silence. <laughs> I got to flex my fanboy side a little bit. That being said, number 50 for me is not the fanboy pick. Number 50 for me, actually, this might surprise Paul, is a Stanley Kubrick film. Ooh, wow. And it's 1964's Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. This is Stanley Kubrick at his finest as an insane general triggers a path to nuclear holocaust that a war room full of politicians and generals frantically tries to stop. And it ends with a man riding a nuclear bomb to Valhalla. And it's filled with some insane Peter Sellers moments along the way. If you haven't seen this, this is, to me, peak Stanley Kubrick, number 50, Dr. Strangelove. So two things on that. And already we're running off the rails. But this is a movie that's on my backlist. I've never actually seen this movie. Number two, my son, who is a huge Stanley Kubrick fan, asked me how many Kubrick movies made it on my list. And I guess we'll just wait to see. This was not one of them, though. Boo. So All it's right. your team draft, so you're up next, right? Uh, no, we'll just go back and forth. Let's just go back and okay. forth. Okay. All right. Number 49 for me, Groundhog Day. hey can't go wrong with Groundhog Day. This is a movie that has worn well with me. I have seen it many, many times by now. Bill Murray is peak Bill Murray, has some really nice thoughts. It's a really well-made comedy. It's super funny while being also kind of profound. So that's why it made my list. Groundhog Day is one that I kind of do keep coming back to. And uh, we'll just, we'll just, I'll just go ahead and note this now. Um, that this is our first crossover this early on. I didn't expect it to happen this early. It's uh, number 49 for you. It landed at 29. Oh, interesting. And uh, Bill Murray, there's a couple of Bill Murray movies that one of the criteria I used was, do I keep coming back to this film? Uh, and, And Groundhog Day is one of those movies that I keep coming back to. It is one of those movies that if it shows up on any sort of channel anywhere, I find myself watching it. I really do. It, it, it just draws you right in. 
All right, 49 for me. Moving into the 21st century, Paul, I thought you'd appreciate how I was in the 1960s for my number 50 (laughs) pick. But at number 49 for me is Jojo Rabbit. Jojo Rabbit. Yeah. This film did surprise me. Uh, I It was not one that I really wanted to rush out and see, and I ended up watching it on an airplane and found myself crying and laughing out loud as uh, Taika Waititi. Man, that, that man knows how to make a film. And uh, this isn't his only time on my list either. Oh, I think I already know the other one. Probably. But Jojo Rabbit, it almost made my list. It made, you know, as I was putting together this list, I had a list of about 150. Jojo Rabbit actually made it into the numbers. I, I have it at number 58. So it's a fine pick. It's great. Good pick. I mean, World War II satire. I mean, that's two for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> oh, Number 48 for me. My daughter was very upset to find how low this ranked on my list. 48, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Oh, inter- interesting for Return of the King to drop this low. Yeah, yeah. I the, the thing, I love all the Lord of the Rings movies, but man, the 17 endings of Return of the King knocked it down a list. I really did enjoy this movie. Well, it, and it made my top 50. Any movie that made my top 50 is going to be relatively good, right? But yeah, this one, uh, I just, four hours was just a little too long for me when you're watching the extended cut. Yeah, the the Lord of the Rings ones, and, and this is, once again, we're getting into crossover territory. They are tough in that regard in that I tend to think of them as a package. And so how do you separate them out? How do you weigh things? Like Fellowship of the Ring is probably the most immediately watchable and rewatchable because it's how it's the series starts. And so you get the introductions you need and you get into the story. And it's like you're probably not going to start with Return of the King when you come back. And yet it also is rich for the way it, it lands the characters. And yet it, it can drag a bit when you've seen it and you're like, well, I already know how you landed it. And so there was that initial experience versus the repeat experience. I totally get that. All just of that. Said, gray havens already. Just go. All of that said, it landed at 48 for you. I landed it at number eight for me. I gave it a Ooh. lot more points for that nostalgia that it is for me and the richness, you know, the return of the King Aragorn, my favorite character. I, I had to give it that primacy. Interesting. So number 48 for me uh, is now where we start to get into the more fun territory. And uh, because number eight for me is a Spielberg film from 2002, Catch Me If You Can. Catch Me If You Can. You've talked about this movie quite a bit. We have. And this is the movie that really turned me around on Leonardo DiCaprio. I had really negative uh, feelings about Leonardo DiCaprio as an actor, even though I hadn't watched any of his movies <laughs> as a teenage boy. But when when somebody showed me Catch Me If You Can, I was like, now this is a blast. You know, we're talking about this, the true story, supposedly true story of Frank Abagnale Jr., a con man, and uh, with Tom Hanks, another very likable individual. This movie is just really moves really quick. It's hopping. But there's a laugh in it, and um, you know it almost feels a little bit like an action intrigue film with all the conning happening in the midst of the comedy. 
another one on my back list, I must admit. I haven't seen it, so... Oh, man. Number number forty seven for me. Let's go dark again, shall we? Go dark again. I I love that you keep bringing it back to the darkness. <laughs> go back to the darkness. This is not as dark, probably as silent. Clint Eastwood directed this movie. He also starred in it. I'm talking, of course, about Gran Torino. What I think is probably the best Clint Eastwood directed movie that I have seen. Um, It was my favorite movie for the year that it came out. I really thought the messages behind it were great. It was a very resonant tale um, that I I actually very much enjoyed. It it hit my my little tender spot in my heart. This is a backlist one for me. I have not seen Gran Torino, even though I'm a fan of Eastwood films. I've really only seen Eastwood's old stuff i haven't watched much of his new stuff other than million dollar baby which was a backlist for me so hmm. grand torino it's uh it's one of my shame my shame bucket <laughs> your shame bucket <laughs> number 47 for me incredibly dark from 2016 heavy themes zootopia very heavy dark Disney taking Twisty. on racism with rabbits and foxes and Jason Bateman. But man, Zootopia kind of came out of nowhere. I feel like in in some ways this for me was bringing me back around to the Disney cinematic universe in terms of cartoons. I hadn't – I didn't grow up like really heavy except on the back catalog like Jungle Book and Robin Hood. Uh, but man, Zootopia is a fun movie. You know, you got this kind of buddy cop drama uh except it's a cop and a criminal and and yet the the themes it's dealing with are pretty poignant and and heavy for a kids film and this this one really stuck for me and I, I saw it in theaters by myself as an adult and it and it really hit me and I've watched it several times since then Zootopia is is sort of one of those movies that really grabs you right i mean i i, I think that it is probably um, in in this new golden age of Disney movies, Zootopia is probably the critics' favorite. I did not like it as much as some people did. Um, like, if I was going to choose a, my favorite movie from this particular era, it'd probably be, you know, Big Hero Six. I really loved Big Hero Six. Really, um, but Zootopia is a fine, fine movie for sure. Yeah, that you know, speaking of that, that that's my other little caveat is. There was a lot of these where I was like, I might rank something like Big Hero 6 and Zootopia really close together. And yet I didn't feel like I should shove both into the top 50. So it's like that's where you started to have some of those compromises in my own list of I already have ones that are really similar to this. I'll just pick yep. one to round out the top really 50. It gets really tricky. Yeah, it gets so tricky making these lists. That's one of the that's the frustrating thing about it and the, really the fun thing about it too is trying to figure out getting getting sort of the right mix. Yeah. Um but speaking of the right mix, I am going to mix in a superhero movie now at number 46. Captain America: The Winter Soldier. 
fresh on on my mind after Falcon and the Winter Soldier because it, they really did feel if, if Falcon and the Winter Soldier feels like anything and it feels like this movie and it's one of I think the best constructed uh, Avengers movies there is it feels very gritty it feels very real it feels more like an espionage thriller in some ways than a superhero story uh, which I really appreciated um, so yeah 46 Captain America the Winter Soldier Crossover, once again, Cap Winter Soldier made my list, but once again, a lot higher. I landed Winter Soldier at number seven Ooh, wow. on my list because of my appreciation for how uh, well it's kind of crafted as a spy espionage thriller. And I think waiting, similar to Lord of the Rings, waiting it for the magnitude of the series that it comes from. Uh, and why I landed it even a spot ahead of Return of the King at number eight is Winter Soldier is uh, even more rewatchable because it doesn't have, you know, those, it doesn't drag on the same way Return of the King does on those repeat viewings. It keeps things moving. Everybody, that, almost everybody that I talk to that goes back and rewatches Cap Winter Soldier appreciates it more. And that's been my experience on rewatch is that you're catching things you didn't catch the first time, you're appreciating. Uh, what the storytelling does and how the characters are moved along in the midst of what's a really good story just for a single movie inside of a bigger universe. That's why it landed in the top 10 for me. All right. Uh, so that brings us back to me. Uh, so thank you, Paul, for letting me talk extra. <laughs> I just thought I'd, I'd give you that opening, you know? That's right. Uh, Back to me at 46 is a movie that has gone by more than one title. And that is 2014's Edge of Tomorrow. Live, die, repeat. There's a lot of, you know, there's a Tom Cruise fan on this podcast and that's not really me. I I can take (laughs) or leave Tom Cruise in general, but put him in a situation where we get to watch him die many times over. (laughs) And I'm bought in. I'm all in. You're you're right in there. That's right. So that was what brought me to Live, Die, Repeat or Edge of Tomorrow originally. But uh, Emily Blunt is fantastic in this movie. And yet it's a really great sci-fi action film. You know, the premise is unique. And kind of creates this Groundhog's Day for sci-fi action alien violence that works both as a uh, in as a story. I think it's it's pretty interesting. But then the action sequences and the conceit of the film um, work as almost a heist film. It's two, and so it ends up being sort of a hybrid uh, combo flick that I just had a lot of fun with, and I think it's worth repeating. As you watch Tom Cruise repeating his death over and over again. It really was a well-done movie. And I think that that Tom Cruise's best movies, outside Mission Impossible movies, which I have a soft spot for, um, he does some great science fiction movies. And Emily Blunt may be one of the best actresses in the business now. I mean, she can do these these sci-fi action thrillers. She can do horror movies. She can do fun things like Mary Poppins Returns. She can she can sing, she can dance, she can do it all. I'm I'm pretty impressed with Emily Blunt. Number 45 for me. This is one that I don't think you've probably seen. All the, no, no, maybe you have. Actually, I think we might have talked about this. Silence of the Lambs. 
<laughs> yes, this was uh, from episode 10 of our podcast <laughs> where we talked about our embarrassing confessions where I watched this in the dark at midnight as a 16-year-old right. and then spent the next several hours with all the lights in the house turned on. <laughs> Worried Buffalo Bill was going to come and take your skin. This is a really creepy, dark movie, but so well done. Anthony Hopkins first Oscar. Uh, Jodie Foster also won an Oscar for this. It was an incredibly well-constructed movie from a genre that typically doesn't get a lot of Oscar love. Um, yeah, it's super disturbing. It has a lot of content caveats, but it's really well done. And that's all. I have nothing else to say. Number 45 <laughs> for me. <laughs> As I quickly move on to moving on, moving reliving on. my own personal trauma. <laughs> Number 45 for me, Casino Royale, the 2006 James Bond film with Daniel Craig. Wow. Now, is this your only James Bond movie on your list? The only James Bond film on my list. And you made it Casino Royale? I did. What is wrong with you? I know. This is is interesting. The the what is wrong with me portion of this is interesting because (laughs) I really didn't like Skyfall. Or, uh, no, no, that's not right. I said the wrong thing. Uh, what's the other one um, in between this and Skyfall? Oh. Who yeah, knows? see? None of us can remember it. Yeah, well, all those all those James Quantum Bond Quantum of titles. Solace. There we go. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't care for Quantum of Solace. And then by the time I got to Skyfall, Skyfall was a film for me that un, uh, I really should have liked a lot. But for some reason underwhelmed me, even though like I look at all the elements in it. And I'm like, that should be, this film should hit for me. And so I still haven't figured out why it doesn't hit for me. It's one I kind of want to, I actually really do want to rewatch Skyfall because I look at this, the parts and I'm like, the sum should be something that I like. And yet I came away feeling empty. Casino Royale, I think lands here because of how much it surprised me. James Bond was a character. I had never watched any James Bond films prior. I had this very negative uh, association with anything James Bond. I thought that uh, Pierce Brosnan seemed sort of, even when I was a kid, Pierce Brosnan seemed sort of like this wimpy, froofy James Bond that I, I didn't buy. And, uh, and you know, of course, I didn't watch any of the old ones. That wasn't a thing in my family. So when I went and saw Casino Royale in theaters and it opened with this parkour chase scene, and the you know the bad guy that bond is chasing you know create does this acrobatic move and slips through this tiny opening in a wall and you're like how is he going to get through there and then you see daniel craig just burst <laughs> through the wall and shake off the dust i was like that right then i knew this is the james bond film for me this is the james yeah. bond for my generation that and that little segment, actually, it, it's almost like the Raiders of the Lost Ark scene where where Indiana Jones shoots the the whip guy, right? I mean, it just has that moment of surprise that is just really delightful. It is. So it, it ended up being a rip-roaring time. I thought this was a great introduction to Craig's Bond and set the tone really well. Um, and I really enjoyed this film. It's funny, and it's got some really cool action in it. I'll have more to say on that in a moment. But first, my number 44 pick. This is one that will not bring up haunting childhood memories for you. Hopefully, Pinocchio, the classic oh, Pinocchio. This brings up haunting memories for a lot of children. Not me, but 
a lot of kids. <laughs> well, it is kind of creepy, right? I mean, you've got kids turning into donkeys and you've got Monstro and you've got some really scary stuff. But I do think that that's one of the things that makes this probably, I think, the best of old Disney, old classic pre-1960 Disney. Um, the, the artwork is amazing. It's the most ambitious of the animated movies that Disney made at the time. Um, the story is deep and powerful. Uh, I, I really watching it over again. It's amazing. As a kid, you, you fall into the story and I don't think it would have been my favorite as a 12 year old by, by any stretch. But as an adult, you watch the, the artistry that goes into this and you, it brings an entirely new level of appreciation to, to the, the, the form, uh, of, of animated movies. It's just tremendous. Pinocchio is one of those where if classic Disney films <laughs> maybe get a rap for sanitizing the fairy tales and the, the fantasy stories that they adapted to make them more palatable, like Cinderella, like Snow White, that have some really dark original editions, Pinocchio like stays pretty close to the darkness <laughs> it's compared a pretty to some dark of those other films uh, when you think about what they do with with the character of Pinocchio. So – Another dark pick for Paul. Moving back away from the darkness, number 44 for me is still the film I point to as the quintessential action comedy of the 21st century. Uh, It literally included a moment where Arnold Schwarzenegger passes the torch to Dwayne Johnson, metaphorically speaking. And, of course, we're talking about 2003's The Rundown with Dwayne Johnson and Sean William Scott. This movie has some laugh out loud funny moments and yet some of the most bad apple action sequences you'll find this side of the year 2000. Uh, when Dwayne Johnson, a, a who eschews guns as a principal in this film, grabs two shotguns and cocks them in his armpit in the final action sequence is just a culmination of a rip roaring time. And, you know, this is one of the early appearances for Rosario Dawson. And Christopher Walken is the villain. The Rundown is an action comedy gem. I may have to see it. I had never had any desire to see it until now. I don't, now I only have a little bit of a desire, but I, I may make it a point. If you don't want to think much and you just want some, some good old-fashioned action comedy fun, it's The Rundown. Number 43 for me, James Bond's Skyfall. All right. Skyfall. So, so um, Casino Royale was a really fine in- introduction to to Daniel Craig um, as James Bond. But I did grow up with James Bond as a character, and I I thought that it was a great addition to the whole James Bond canon. But man, it couldn't really touch some of the old movies that I saw, the John, the Sean Connery movies, the Roger Moore movies. I even like Pierce Brosnan. He did some fine James Bond movies. But when it comes to the ultimately best James Bond movie, I think it's got to be Skyfall. It had, and I do, I think I understand where you're coming from, Jake. If you haven't, if you're not involved with the franchise, there's so much in Skyfall that harkens back to some of those earlier movies. Um, and it's a really powerful statement of, of, of sort of 
pushing us through the entire uh, the entire catalog in some ways. You need, you see the old cars, you see all these care, you know, all of this, all this weight of the history of the franchise is on Skyfall. And it culminates in such a powerful story that was surprising for, let's face it, James Bond movies are not meant to be very, very good or very deep, really. They're supposed to be fun. They're supposed to be these rollicking action movies. You don't necessarily even follow the plot in most of them. You're just there for the action. Skyfall felt like a well-put-together movie that I think should have been nominated for Best Picture the year it came out, quite honestly. I mean, I can't fault the pick. I get, I see the value of all the pieces and, and maybe that's why, maybe you've hit the nail on the head as to why I haven't been able to identify why it didn't land the way I expected it to land for me. Maybe. Maybe. Number 43 for me, the first Pixar film on the list for me, WALL-E from 2008. This film is a gem for me because of the way it harkens back to the days of yesteryear. It's almost a silent film in many ways, and yet uh, it's it's not. And that's why it irritates the heck out of my mom because she hates <laughs> the Wally Eva conversations and she cannot stand this film. And yet I love the dynamic between these two robots as they navigate life in a post-apocalyptic but maybe post-post-apocalyptic future for the world in space. Wally for me, I mean, I, if it comes on, I'm going to watch it, Paul, and I'm yeah. going to I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to feel warm and fuzzy. So many great Pixar movies. Wally did not make my list, but I can understand why it made yours. Number forty two for me. This is I a like movie that, that backhanded insult. <laughs> it really is a great movie. I really do enjoy it. But but number forty two, Wally did not make number forty two for me. This is a movie that will make no one uh, no one else's top 50 list, I am sure, except for maybe Ben Stiller. The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Uh. I loved this movie. It was so good. I don't understand why critics did not particularly like this film, but I thought it was lovely. Uh, it's, it's very loosely based on James Thurber's story. Uh, it stars Ben Stiller as this guy who is just trying to get, find a photo. He goes all over the world in search for a photo and, uh, it, it leads into some really poignant, powerful places. I, this is a movie, honestly, I will watch and it makes me tear up every single time I see it. I love the ending. It's a great ending. Why do more people not like this movie? Why, everybody should see this and love it just as much as I do. Some people just don't like Ben Stiller, I've found. I'm not one of those people. Walter Mitty really hit for me. In no small part due to the fact that the first time I watched it was a back-to-back reviewing uh, you know, experience for me where the first film was The Wolf of Wall Street. So, oh. <laughs> you know, Walter Mitty hit track. extra, extra for me that night. <laughs> yeah, but that I would do, be the contrast. I do really enjoy it. And it's got a really fantastic soundtrack. That it yeah. does. It does indeed. 42 for me is the newest film on my list so far. And that's 2019's Knives Out. Ooh. Ryan Johnson, or Ryan Johnson, the director, who's received a lot of flack for what he did in the new Star Wars trilogy, or Which a lot of good. praise. Yes, I liked I it. I liked it. I liked what he did. 
brought sort of this old school noir and blended it well with modern aesthetic and a really dynamite cast, um, you know, with Chris Evans and uh, Daniel Craig, take it or leave it, Anna de Armas, but Jamie Lee Curtis just sizzling in this film and uh, sort of an old school whodunit. And uh, man, this not only did it have a pretty interesting message laced in and throughout the film, it was just a really fun, compelling whodunit. Like you just felt like there was a lot of homage to the classics that landed well. And yet what it did to reflect the modern aesthetic was also really appreciable. And so there you go. Knives out for me. Yeah, yeah, it was a great movie. It almost made my list too. I was really debating whether to go Knives Out or one of the older whodunits. Um, Time will tell to see if any of them made my list. All right, so we are on number 41. Is that right? That is correct. Number 41 for me. This is a powerful movie. Um, I'm talking about The Mission, 1981. Um, it stars Robert De Niro, Jeremy Irons. It is a fabulous story about uh, these 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 people who go into the jungles of South America. It, it takes place when slavery is still a thing. Colonial Europeans are going into the jungles to snag slaves, essentially, but they are protected. Some of these some of these um, the, the the populations there are protected at times by these missions. And so it sort of revolves around both the, the protective missions that we see along with a personal uh, narrative of, of sin and redemption and what it means to truly follow God. It's a really powerful movie that I truly, it, it's a hard movie to watch in some ways, but I truly enjoy it. It has some, some amazing images that are just indelible. The mission is one that I've seen more than a few times, but never all the way through start to finish. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, it's it's one that I, for some reason I've never been able to like – every time I've seen it, I've either come in halfway through and watched some of it or come in at the beginning but then had to leave or you know, caught the tail end and just never actually watched the whole thing as much as you've talked about it, as much as Plugged In has talked about it over the years. <laughs> I'm probably the only one who plugged in who talks about it, actually, because I, I just I dig it so much. Well, you know, this is where we probably get back into my plugged in homerism over even yours. Uh, it was a part of the original movie nights oh. that came out oh so many years ago. Before my time, even. Man, that's, that's incredible. Right. Number 41 for me from director Ava DuVernay, 2014's Selma. Ooh, yeah. As I talked about before, this is uh, uh, a lot of films, you know, you have to see many times. This is one that's still sitting with me, even though I haven't yet watched it a second time. Um, Really powerful film. Of course, Selma is telling the story of uh, the 1960s civil rights movement, sort of through the eyes of Martin Luther King Jr., as played uh, by David Oyelowo. And uh, it's just some really powerful moments. You see the fatigue, you see the frustration, you see the persistence, the stubbornness of Martin Luther King Jr., the brokenness of Martin Luther King Jr. Although it doesn't delve really deep into all of the cracks, uh, it, it does not, it, even though it paints a very strong 
and righteous picture of Martin Luther King and doesn't completely ignore the faults in the man and the pains and the the brokenness in the man either. And it's just a really, really powerful, like hit you in the chest movie. And so Selma lands at number 41 on my list. Great choice. It was my favorite movie of that year for sure. I think it was a very, very, very good movie. And it made, and it made when, when, uh, when the, the director did A Wrinkle of Time all the more disappointing because I was mm. expecting more. Yeah, uh, number 40 for me, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Wow. All right. Second, uh, second chapter to, to make it on my list. Uh, the reason why it landed here is simply because of that incredible battle scene at Helm's Deep. Uh, the Helm's Deep battle scene might be one of the best in cinema, quite frankly. It is really powerful, uh, strong, uh, resonant, filled with heroism and, and tragedy and all sorts of really great things that you watch these movies for. Um, I, I, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers makes my my list at number 40. Yeah, Two Towers. We're back to crossover territory here. For me, landed at number 16. Similarly, uh, this was one where, as we've talked about before, I had so much hype for the Lord of the Rings series. And I remember being on vacation with my family, picking up a USA Today uh, in the hotel lobby to read the entertainment section and find out the late and read about the Weta digital workshop and what they were working on for the two towers and then to go see it this was the one i got to see a pre-screening of i won tickets to and the battle of helms deep did not disappoint for all the build-up that i had for it it still is yeah just an incredible set piece yeah inside a really great series yeah i think that battle scene it, it excels anything that we see in in return of the king quite frankly i think the battles in return of the king are just so massive that it's hard it's a little bit harder to get your brain around mm. the the two towers battle feels really visceral i think because it's smaller and it, it feels real like i with with return of the king and the the final climactic battle it did feel kind of cgi-ish after after a couple of watchings, man, Helm's Deep still feels as real as the day is long, even though it's a, filled with a bunch of orcs and elves. It's true. Number 40 for me, moving back to the 1960s, Peter Sellers making another appearance on my list. This one has a lot of nostalgia. 1964's A Shot in the Dark. Ooh, a Shot in the Dark, if uh, my parents loved the Pink Panther series, they loved Inspector Clouseau, and uh, not all the – they made – the Pink Panther movies kind of became like the Land Before Time movies before the Land Before Time movies became the Land Before Time movies, and they just kept making them. Like even after Peter Sellers was dead, they tried to make <laughs> Pink Panther movies. And uh, But A Shot in the Dark is the second in the film. It's sort of like The Godfather Part Two in the pink Panther series. And so if there's one, you're gonna, if you haven't jumped into the pink old pink Panthers, if there's one, you're gonna start with, I, I actually, I would say go with a shot in the dark. The, the original pink Panther is a little bit darker and it doesn't really focus in on as uh, Peter Sellers, inspector Clouseau as much. Right. He's, he's much more of the antagonist in, in the later movies, starting with a shot in the dark, he becomes kind of this weird hero and it really does bring what we think of these old Pink Panther movies as. It's a, it's a great movie. It's a great movie. Number 39, going along with the theme of the second movie in a trilogy, 
Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back. Ah, I... Many uh... people consider this to be the best Star Wars movie. Um, it did not... Rogue One, but... <laughs> so many people love Rogue One. But Empire Strikes Back, it's the darkest of the series, clearly. Um, many people consider it to be the best because of that darkness. Um, and it is a very resonant Fun movie, you know, it, it, even with all the terrible things that happen, it's still a really fun movie to watch. And it has some of the some of the best moments in Star Wars history. I think that that actually when you think about the the franchise that has become Star Wars, we may owe that more to Empire Strikes Back than to the original Star Wars, because if it hadn't been such a strong entry into the series, who knows where it would have gone. It's true. It could have fizzled and really killed it. While it was nascent. Very true. Number 39 for me. This is the, the actually for me in, in terms of my own personal experience and memory of this film is probably the most Paul AC experience <laughs> that I have before I even knew who Paul AC was. Uh, 2004's directed by Edgar Wright, Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> This was one of those movies, you know, it's an R-rated zombie apocalypse comedy that is surprisingly resonant in the message it sort of has to tell about a man who sort of realizes because of the zombie apocalypse that maybe he's been living as a walking dead person all along and yet finds a way to bond with friends and family uh, in the midst of throwing records to try to decapitate zombies and using a cricket paddle. And I mean, this was, this is the first Edgar Wright film movie that I remember film movie that I remember watching and uh, really appreciating not only the sense of humor, but sort of a level of depth in the midst of that. So uh, that I think kind of defines a lot of the ought films was sort of seeing this transition from the nineties, which had a lot of really vacuous comedy and action film and you started seeing these directors bringing a lot of heart to the genres where you didn't expect it, whether it was Judd Apatow in his raunchy comedies or Edgar Wright with these, uh, you know, zombie apocalypse or buddy cop send ups. Um, Shaun of the Dead for me. It's a really fun movie, again, with a lot of content caveats. But I have to say, um, I just reviewed a zombie movie, Army of the Dead, for Netflix. I find myself when I watch zombie movies, including Army of the Dead, thinking not back to, to George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, but to Shaun of the Dead. I, I think in some ways that is – it really is – it was such a unique take on the whole zombie experience. And when you talk about that weird – gray area literally gray area when you have these friends who become zombies you know what do you do with that that's something that army of the dead touches on a little bit um but it's something that that shawn of the dead really <clears throat> fleshed out and i thought it did a very good job with that all right number 38 for me the impossible mm. say no more because you've said a lot. <laughs> I've said a lot. Naomi Watts, tsunami, devastation, family. It's all great. Makes me cry every time. Now, this is one that like I, 
I have not watched because even as much as you've talked about how great it is, when I sit down at the end of the day, I'm like, do I really, is that the kind of film I want to click on right now? <laughs> One quick story. I've, I've also been talking to my family about it ad nauseum, and I actually convinced my wife to sit down and watch it with me. We watched half an hour. The tsunami hit. There was some skin flaps that were involved and she said, no, we are turning this off now. So we've we've made it through a quarter of the movie. She says that she wants to watch the rest of it because it really is good. But at that moment, she was done. It's like back to Gravity Falls for us, Paul. <laughs> Number 38 for me, 2008's Eep Man. This is a semi-biographical account of Eep Man, <laughs> the first martial arts master to teach the Chinese martial art of Wing Chun. He's famous for his connection into Bruce Lee. It's semi-autobiographical in that this was a real individual um, who lived in the early 20th century, lived through the different world wars, um, and man, uh, he's he was the he was the master of Bruce Lee. And so, uh, Eat Man focuses on uh, the city of Foshan in the 1930s and 40s uh, during the uh, the the Second Sino-Japanese War. It, it's like this really interesting premise, and yet if you like martial arts kung fu films, this film introduced me, though I know people knew him before, to Donnie Yen, who most people will probably be familiar with for his appearance in Rogue One. Shout out Rogue One uh, as a Jedi you know, guardian, right? Temple guardian. But oh my goodness, this film, the cinematography, the, the choreography for the kung fu is – I mean, just absolutely stunning. And for all the Kung Fu and martial arts that I've watched, this was one that I just sort of randomly stumbled upon as a Netflix recommendation, and it absolutely blew my mind. And I will go back and watch the sequences from this film for the cinematography, for the choreography. You know, it's really strange in some ways how these these – these Eastern action martial arts flicks really sort of blend with the old 1940s song and dance numbers. When I think of mm -hmm. like Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movies like, like Top Hat or, or Swing Time or something like that, the thing that, that is the immediate, um, modern counterpoint is, are these, are these martial arts movies with their incredibly detailed cinematography and choreography? It's just incredible. And it, there really is a dance to it. Yeah. And what's interesting, if you do go back and watch Eat Man, is the fact that it's unlike a lot of other kung fu movies, it's grounded in history. And so there's a lot of it, – it's actually very moving because of its connection into some very real and, and tragic circumstances. Number 37 for me, Saving Private Ryan. Steven hey, Spielberg. back this for you. You're yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. It, it, I can't say that it's one of the most enjoyable movies on my list, but in terms of, again, your phrase, cinematography, uh, cinema experience, it works. It has a really very tautly, tightly told story, even though it runs pretty long. Um, and it just involves this, this act of heroism, trying to get this soldier back to his family. Um, Tom Hanks, Matt Damon, a whole bunch of people who you recognize. Uh, I don't think I need to say very much about it because a we lot of people are saying yeah, exactly, exactly. Go back to the episode and listen. That's that's what makes this a perfect 100th movie or like a 100th show for us is because we've talked about so many of these movies. 
Yep, little appetizers send you back to the to the history timeline of pop culture with fanboy know it all. Number thirty seven for me is the most grounded alien movie I've probably ever watched, and that is two thousand nine's District Nine by Neil mm. Blomkamp. Goodness gracious, I didn't know anything about Neil Blomkamp. I didn't know anything about this film prior to watching it when it came out in 2009, and I was blown away by how well the story felt grounded in the grittiness of uh, South Africa and um, you know the, the, what the, the energy they brought, the way they were able to make us empathize with these aliens uh, that didn't even speak English. Like we didn't even have E.T. talking about phoning home. I didn't like E.T., by the way. So if it shows up on Paul's list, I'm going to throw him <laughs> out of here. Uh, but uh, 2009's District 9 is a really surprising sci-fi film that feels grounded for all of the all of the lack of grounded elements that it has in terms of the alien presence and technology. Um, a really surprising film. Number 36 for me, The Avengers. Oh, uh, oh, pretty uh, putting this above Winter Soldier. Yeah, for me, and I think we even talked about this on our MCU podcast. Yes. Um, the Avengers for me is the perfect blend of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. In that, it was the first time we got to see these characters truly blended together, which was kind of a, a fanboy thrill for me, right? Just to see all these superheroes on the stage at one time. It was a huge event. And the thing is, I was looking forward to it so much. Things that you look forward to often disappoint. The Avengers did not disappoint. It was fun. It was exciting. It featured, still features one of the best bad guys in the MCU and Loki. Um, has some scenes that we can all quote by heart. It was just a very well-crafted superhero movie. And I think in some ways, it's what many superhero movies that came after still aspire to be. That's right. Go back to when we did our top 10 Marvel Cinematic Universe films of all time. Uh, though actually I think the number 36 on my list came out after we did that list or else it might have made that list or maybe it, came, it might not actually have been before and would have made that list but that is 2017's Thor Ragnarok. Uh, that num- landed at number 36 on my list. Uh, this is a funky film. This felt still when you go and watch it, it doesn't really feel like an MCU film Even, but it also doesn't feel like it's foreign to the MCU. Like they managed Taika Waititi. We talked about him before managed to make this crazy, almost pseudo psychedelic entry in the Avengers franchise. And yet it's got some bomb superhero action sequences, laugh out loud, funny moments and some surprising, surprisingly resonant character development for Thor and for Bruce Banner. And there you go. It's a very strange movie in that it it's it's part of the canon and yet it feels like Thumb Wars does to Star Wars, right? <laughs> it feels like some fan just made a really high budget fan movie making fun and yet somehow playing, paying homage to some of these characters. And it made it into the MCU canon. Uh, just, just a hoot of a movie. I, I just rewatched Thor, the original Thor, and it makes me a little sad to watch the original Thor to think about so many of those characters are, you know, they don't make it out of Ragnarok in some ways. But 
But it is a great movie, super fun, very strange, and that's what makes it such a winner, you know? Yeah. Okay, numbers 34 for me. No, wait, wait, wait. 35. 35. 35. This is a movie I know you have not seen, and you will never see. The Exorcist. Oh, such a good, scary horror movie. It is very taut. Um, I think I've told this story before. The first time I saw it was when I was a kid and we were having a sleepover and my friend wanted to watch The The Exorcist. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go to bed. And I just heard (laughs) he would spend the entire night saying, Oh, Paul, did you see that? Ah, ah. So that was that was pretty much my experience. I was pretending to be asleep, not wanting to watch this really scary movie, um, but ended up getting absorbing it all. <laughs> anyway, I have watched it, actually watched it with my eyes since, and it does hold up pretty well. Nope, won't watch it. Number 35 for me is, though, interestingly enough, on our list, is the only... Uh, potentially identified as a horror film on my list. And that is 2017's Get Out. Ooh. Directed by Jordan Peele. We've got a podcast episode on this one. Uh, this dark comedy horror thriller from Jordan Peele of Key and Peele sketch comedy fame really hits on pretty much every level. And I don't want to spoil it if you haven't seen it. The conceit is great. Get Out. It's a great movie. It's not particularly scary, but it is a great movie. Number 34 for me, going back to your Eat Man pick, this is my favorite martial arts movie, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Boy, you were talking about Return of the King dragging on. In the end, (laughs) Crouching Tiger really drags in the middle, but boy, the kung fu is great. Man, it is so great. It is so entertaining. I love the fight scene between between the two core women characters in the in the castle. It's one of the best martial arts weapon infused fight scenes you will ever see. Um, I really loved the action to it, but I also loved the story. I think that the the story of of love and redemption and this this older master trying to teach this young headstrong pupil who's super talented is a very compelling movie it was nominated for a whole bunch of oscars back in the day it deserved every single one of the nominations it's i think it's it's by far my favorite martial arts movie number 34 for me from 2017 thor ragnarok then get out another 2017 movie coming in the list Logan. Logan. Man. Feels like an old west gunslinger of a film, yet it's set in the X-Men universe. And you have this father-daughter dynamic going on, even though they're not father and daughter. Come on. Get out of town. This is a film. And it, it really, similar to Winter Soldier, hangs in as a standalone. Like, of course, you'll have maybe more context and appreciation for uh, Logan Wolverine. If you've watched other films with Hugh Jackman playing the character, but uh, man, it it's tight. It runs. Yeah, it's this is a movie that I was actually really surprised didn't make my list. 
quite honestly, um, because I rave about Logan. I, it, it took place in one of the greatest superhero years of all time, right? Um, 2017 was the year of Thor Ragnarok. It was the year of the first Wonder Woman. Um, I think Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse was also in that that year. And Logan, I think, was my favorite. And the, I think the reason why uh, I didn't I didn't go into this for the list was just because of that harsh, harsh farm scene. As beautiful as the movie was and as resonant as it was, that was a hard one for me to stomach. And I think that that, that just sort of – that disturbing element, while I totally understand why I did it, it didn't make it as enjoyable in some ways for me. So it sort of missed my list. 33 for you. Uh, 33 for me is Some Like It Hot. Classic Jack Lemon, Tony Curtis, Marilyn Monroe comedy series. It was just pitch perfect in terms of what it did. Um, it, it, it really involves cross dressing. I, you just can't say it any more than that. But these two musicians are on the lam from uh, from these guys who are trying to kill them. So they disguise themselves as these these women band players, and they go traveling on this train, uh, and they meet up with Marilyn Monroe. And it's just it is a hoot. Some like it hot is a hoot. If you haven't seen it, it is great. It's backlist for me. Some like it hot. Never seen that one. Weird <laughs> to think why my parents didn't let. You know, child me watch that. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't remember. I don't remember this one ever coming up. I don't know if they've even ever seen it. Number thirty-three for me is not quite as uh, foot loose and fancy free as some like it hot. Because, but it's one you just need to go back and listen to our episode on it because this was on Paul's backlist and we talked about it. It's two thousand seven's No Country for Old Men, one of uh, the greatest yeah. villains in cinematic history. It's a hard movie to watch. And yet, talk about a slow burn. It really pulls you along through the story with one of the most menacing villains of all time with uh, Javier Bardem's Anton Sugar. Go listen to our episode on it. <laughs> it is, you know, not a lot of Coen brothers made my list, which uh, which is kind of surprising because I do tend to like Coen brothers movies. Man, this was a dark movie, but I totally understand why it made your list. 32 for you? Oh, number 32 for me. This is a movie that many people, when they hear it, would just say, what are you talking about, Paul? Roma. Three hours long, black and white, foreign language. It is still a beautiful movie. It is really a fantastic movie that I think should have won the Oscar back when it came out in 2018, 2019. Um beautiful story about this uh this maid essentially in mexico city and her relationship with her family and and that quasi tension between being this servant and being this member of the family um it is it is just a gorgeous movie with so much poetry in it not a lot of not a lot of movies really rise to the level of poetry but i think roma really does it's it's a good film but it is uh, you you cannot be tired when you go into Roma. You got to make sure you're awake and you're attentive and you're locked in because you got got a lot of reading. Exactly. All right, number thirty two for me is Ridley Scott's two thousand Turn of the Century Gladiator. We talked about one of the greatest cinematic universe 
villains of all time and the Anton Sugar. Yaquin Yaquin Phoenix's Commodus might be the slimiest in cinematic history. Boy, is he a creep, and you just hate everything about his stupid guts. And (laughs) Russell Crowe really brings it as Max, as Maximus in this film. I remember seeing trailers for this as a child and just thinking, "Wow, that looks like a terribly violent film," and it is a terribly violent film. But it is really resonant in this, the tale of uh, Maximus and his rise and fall inside of the Colosseum is compelling and really pulls you along through what is actually a pretty long film, 155 minutes. But the way it's it moves commitment. you between fight sequences, is it compels you to see him see his quest to the end, even though I don't believe in revenge. yeah you know it definitely made russell crowe a star and honestly joker even including joker i think this is joaquin phoenix's best performance he definitely embodies just badness in this and he is really good um it was it's a really fun exciting painful movie to watch and yes it is a commitment number 31 for me Going back in time, I'm going to go with uh, Jeff Bridges, Robin Williams, and The Fisher King. Mm. Um, This was a movie that really struck me when it first came out. I love the idea of these quixotic quests, right? Uh, And and this is the the ultimate uh, quest in terms of that, where this, this homeless, crazy guy encourages this down-on-his-luck DJ to go look for the Holy Grail and in so doing find some sort of measure of, of redemption for the both of them. Um, it's a it's a really well-done movie that can be difficult to watch in places, uh, but super fun, and I just love the quirky inspiration of it all. Yeah, this is one that I really – is backlist for me, and I think I really need to get to because I like Robin Williams. I like Jeff Bridges. I like the setup for it. Fisher King is a great pick there. 31 for me, Christopher Nolan. It's not the first Christopher Nolan film, nor the first one I watched, but it really is a great introduction to the audacity of this director. And that's 2000's Memento. Mm. Uh, such uh, a an interesting conceit and really audacious of Nolan to film the movie, like to put a movie together where he's working from beginning to end and end to beginning, scene by scene, and melding to meet somewhere in the middle with a character with memory loss, trying to find his wife's killer. Guy Pierce gives a great performance, and uh, this is just an experience of a film. Like, really, to me, epitomizes what the heck just happened. <laughs> I have to rewatch this right away. It's so funny. I was expecting us to have a lot of disagreements on this list. So far, that has not happened. And I think part of that is because there's just a lot of really good movies out there, even movies that didn't make the list. You can't argue with them. Memento is a great, twisty introduction, as you say, to Christopher Nolan movies. You know, I think it really works well on that on that level. And it and it embodies the sort of movie that only Christopher Nolan ever seems to succeed at. Number 30 for me, Alfred Hitchcock's Lifeboat. Lifeboat. This This doesn't come up a lot. 
It really doesn't. It really doesn't. This is not considered to be one of Alfred Hitchcock's best movies, but for me, I love the conceit of it because it it just is really talking about, you know, 12, 15 people stuck on a lifeboat after their ship goes down in the middle of World War II. Um, And it, it becomes this drama uh, one of the one of the passengers on this lifeboat speaks German, and there's uh, some question as to whether he might be a German spy or not. And so most of the movie is really just talking about, is this guy a bad guy or not? Um, it's a very, very compelling um, psychological thriller, if you will, because, of course, it all takes place in this lifeboat. So you're not going to see a lot of scenery besides that. Um, but it's really well done. One of Alfred Hitchcock's lesser known gems, in my opinion. I love bottle episodes, so I'm going to add this to my backlist right now. (laughs) (laughs) Number 30 for me, 2017 again. Oh, my right. Again, but not a superhero. It's Baby Driver. I thought this might make your list. Controversially, if you go back and listen to our episode where we talk about the best movie musicals of all time, Baby Driver makes my list and I make my case very strongly, I believe, (laughs) in that episode for why Baby Driver should be considered a movie musical. This is a crime film, a heist film, a movie musical, a romance film that really hits and drives along like there's there's hardly any breaths to take in this film and yet it does manage some quiet moments we even have a a foster father foster son thread pulling us through paul baby driver's a great <laughs> great film <laughs> Well, this is one of those movies that I think may come up on both of our lists if we ever do that intro show that we have talked about doing sometime yeah. on the podcast. The best, best intro. It has one of the best intros of all time. It's a, it's not a bad movie. It's not a bad movie. It did not make my list. It's it did not even movie. make the 100, my 100 list. That's a shame. So, number 29 for me, Dunkirk. Dunkirk, speaking of Christopher Nolan, this is a a rollicking war, really taut 90-minute war story uh, taking place on three different timelines during World War II. Uh, It takes place like a week on the ground, a day on the sea an hour in the air and it tells the the essentially about the 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 retreat from Dunkirk in a very concise incredibly moving way uh driven by Hans Zimmer's incredible score for it which I believe he won the Oscar for um it's a it's it may be one of my favorite war movies of all time i think it's really well put together super tightly paced very creative nolan he loves messing with time in his he friend. does love messing with time Number 29 for me, we've already talked about it. It's Groundhog Day. There you go. Feels like we've done this one before. (laughs) So weird. (laughs) 28 for you, Paul. Number 28 for me, The Lion in Winter. 1968 stars two towering figures in uh, in the world of cinema. Peter O'Toole, Catherine Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn won her third Academy Award for this one. Uh, it also stars a very, very young Anthony Hopkins. Um, and the beauty of this movie is all in the dialogue. It focuses in, on... Uh, 
Oh, goodness. Henry II and a little Christmas court he had with his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, and their three squabbling sons. Um, it's a really well-paced. It was originally a, a stage play. You can tell it in the dialogue. The dialogue is very quippy and witty and bright. Um, it's a very smart movie that I saw actually when I was nine years old, and I still remembered scenes from that time. And that made me want to come back to it and really appreciate the acting when I was of an age to do it. Timothy Dalton, Peter O'Toole, Anthony Hopkins. Oh, man. Yeah, it's stacked. It is stacked. Number 28 for me, Pixar, Brad Bird, 2004, The Incredibles. (laughs) somehow managing to bring a superhero movie and pairing it with a cinematic noir film and making it all about family all along the ways. It's quotable. The action is fun. The characters are memorable. The set pieces are there. The villain is just quirky enough to be remembered, but not too big and doesn't steal the film from the family thunder. Goodness gracious, the Incredibles is a delight still, very rewatchable, very fun, and just a solid film. Like, not just a good kid's film, just a solid movie. Yeah, I tell you what, Pixar has made some great movies, and The Incredibles is one of the great ones, right? It's a really fun movie. I, I I can't quibble with this pick, even though it didn't make my list at all. Number 27 to me, Blade Runner. Might be Ridley Scott's, one of Ridley Scott's best movies, I think. Uh, Harrison Ford, Rutger Hauer, it really is a very twisty, turny look at what it means to be human. Um, it involves Harrison Ford trying to track down these, these rogue replicants, uh, trying to, to bring them to terminal justice, as it were. And it, it, it's a really fascinating look at this very gritty, grimy, um, futuristic world that none of us would want to live in. Um, the atmosphere is great. Uh, the plotting is just spot on. It can feel a little bit slow. When I tried to show my kids this movie when they were of age, they didn't make it through. Um, but I really love it. If you watch to the end, it has a great payoff. I like Blade Runner. It landed at 55 on my list. So right right there with you. Number 27 for me, though, uh, you knew he couldn't show up. He, you knew he would show up, but you knew it couldn't be too early on in our list. Brad Pitt makes his first appearance at number 27 in Not an ensemble last. film, though. Ocean's Eleven, Steven Soderbergh. Oh. This will forever be the film that I compare heist films to. It was seminal for me watching just the this movie clips. Like when you talk about pace, this movie really feels like it never lets you take a breath. The camera's moving fast. The cuts are moving fast. The quips are coming in hot and heavy. None of them delivered any better than by Brad Pitt as Rusty Ryan in the midst of mouthfuls of food. I, I mean, talk about a tour de force of a cast, Damon Clooney, Pitt, Roberts, Bernie Mac, even Carl Reiner, Don Shadle, Scott, Con- I mean, Casey, I mean, this film is a good time. I know that some people might harken back to the Rat Pack, but it didn't have Brad Pitt. So Ocean's <laughs> Eleven. Yeah. This is the move. This is the first movie where I would say absolutely you are entirely wrong. 
Now, I may have to watch Lotions 11 again and just see if there's something I'm missing, but man, I don't know. I think there are better heist movies out there. I actually think the remake of The Italian Job is better than Ocean's Eleven. No. Okay, you definitely need to rewatch Ocean's Eleven. I like the remake of The Italian Job. Hmm. Love, really enjoyed it. Ocean's Eleven is better. (laughs) Number 26 on my list. It's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. Hated in its own time. It is such a lovely movie. Oh my goodness. Who can hate It's a Wonderful Life? I watch it. Everybody at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's true. It didn't make a lot of money at the very beginning. But in terms of just the the schmaltz that it brings, the sensitivity that it brings, uh, I think this is, I love, I have a soft spot for Frank, Frank Capra movies. We talked about Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which I gave high consideration to for this list as well. But when I tried to compare Mr. Smith and It's a Wonderful Life, both starring Jimmy Stewart, I think It's a Wonderful Life feels like a stronger movie and one that brings more smiles and maybe a little bit more tears to your eyes. It's so sweet, so charming. There's a reason why it's become an all-time Christmas classic. Yeah, the reason is that they let the copyright expire, and so the, and we are all fortunate for it. Domain, and so it just got aired during everyone's childhood, and they're like, "I guess I'm supposed to like this movie because it's always on TV." It's a beautiful movie, Jake. Beautiful. To quote Paul AC, "It's fine. It's just <laughs> fine." Not top 50 worthy, though. Number 26 for me is Monty Python and the Holy Grail, 1975. Uh, I actually think Life of Brian is the funniest Python film, but it's not as accessible. Or as quotable. Less quotable, many more content caveats in Life of Brian. So Holy Grail tops it out for me and lands at number 26 on my list Uh, because you probably – it's like – if Monty Python's Flying Circus had all of its best sketches in a film, most of them are in uh, the Holy Grail. <laughs> yeah. They all hit, but they hit at a really high rate and are some of the most memorable Python sketches of all time. It's only a flesh wound. I think that some, there are people who can quote the whole thing. I can. It is. It is by far the most quotable Monty Python movie. It is a hoot from start to finish, including the credits. The credits yeah, the are credits even. Credits are so good. I mean, it, it even resurfaced in modern culture when somebody on Fox News got duped by a tweet that was use, quoting Monty Python's Holy Grail. <laughs> and the guy, but Fox News picked it up as like actual insurrectionist tweeting. Uh, it's so good. <laughs> oh man, I do like that movie. You're not going to like this next one though, Jake. I know this already. Number twenty-five, two thousand one, A Space Odyssey. Boom. Hey, this is probably this. our best episode. If you like Paul and Jake arguing, go back and listen to us fight. Over oh 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's still, to me, the probably the the definitive and best fight that Paul and I have ever had. And we've had a lot. But yeah, 2001 A Space Odyssey, you are so, so, so wrong on that, that we can't help but fight. So we've talked enough about a 2001. I don't think we need to say any more thing more. On to your 25 pick. Number 25, also a backlist film for me. 2001 Space Odyssey was backlist for me. To Kill a Mockingbird. 
I think was, that was that was backlist for both of us, wasn't it? It was um, backlist for both of us. Yeah, 1962. Oh my goodness gracious! This film holds up. The cinematography, the things they were doing, just in the title sequence, was really impressive from a visual standpoint. Just sort of the eye of the filmmakers and Gregory Peck's turn as Atticus Finch, and uh, man, this film really still hits all these years later. Not only does it feel relevant, it feels really well made and it really draws you mm-hmm. in, in some powerful it's ways. A, it's a great, great movie. I tell you, Gregory Peck's best movie by far. Number 24 for me. Speaking of black and white classics, let's go with the Maltese Falcon. Mm, backlist for Humphrey me. Humphrey Bogart, the ultimate in kind of detective, you know, that that whole hard-boiled detective vibe, Maltese Falcon may be the ultimate expression of that. And and Humphrey Bogart is just amazing in this movie. It's a it's just this this great little detective yarn that 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 spools through a very taut, very watchable uh, movie. I I I love it. I love the atmosphere of it. I love the 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 acting in it. I just love the entire vibe. It it digs. It it really works for me. I've never even seen the Maltese Falcon, and yet Sam Spade. That's exactly right. It's true. You did. It's it truly is. That's the thing about the Maltese Falcon is you don't even have to have ever seen it to be completely familiar with at least the vibe of the story. Yeah. And Brad Pitt may be the best actor of all time, but is there any better actor name than Humphrey Bogart? (laughs) (laughs) Number 24 for me, Nolan, back on the list. 2006, The Prestige. Oh, The Prestige. This is on my backlist. I've never seen it. Oh, my goodness, Paul. I think every time you say that, I am surprised that it's still (laughs) on your backlist because there's so many things you would love about this from it being Christopher Nolan, from it being only a shade over two hours, from it being (laughs) Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman, Michael Caine and Scarlett Johansson. I mean, the cast is there. The story is there. The pacing is there. The intrigue between dueling magicians, which sounds like a ridiculous (laughs) plot line, and yet somehow it really, really works and is the best magician movie of 2006. I do have to say that I, the best magician movie out of 2006. The Illusionist also came out in 06. (laughs) I was, as I was doing this list, I did glance at a few other top, top lists Prestige made this list more often than I would have expected. It's every time I see the name, I think this and the departed are the two movies that I think I, I say to myself, I've got to watch those movies because everybody talks about them. I, I need to know what the buzz is about them. So yeah, it's on my list. Number 23 for me, my second Ridley Scott movie, alien, Mm. alien, I don't know if there has ever been a more taut sci-fi slash horror movie than Alien. It is just so nicely paced throughout the whole thing. It is really creepy throughout the entire film. Um, I've heard it described as as a haunted house movie, and I love haunted house movies, as you know, Jake. Um, this really works for me. Um, and, and it brought Sigourney Weaver to to the face of the public and she's one of my favorite actresses 
Paul, this is so fortuitous. Not only is this another crossover moment, but number 23 on my list (laughs) is Alien. That's hilarious. Everything you just said is correct. This is feminist filmmaking at its finest with such a a incredible character that Sigourney Weaver plays uh, the, the tension in the film. This is after get out probably as close to horror as I can like and enjoy as a movie watcher. Yeah. And it's a horror movie for sure. And even the films that it spawned since then, I really enjoy what Ridley Scott has explored in this universe. Not all of them hit, but Prometheus, uh, you know, is in this universe in this cinematic universe, and I really enjoy what Ridley Scott explores in these arenas. Number 22, I guess it's on to me. Number 22, North by Northwest. So Second low, Alfred Hitchcock movie. Huh? So low. This, I said so low, Paul. Everybody I know. else puts this in the top 10. It didn't make my top 50, but it, it's in the top 100. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm a sucker for Alfred Hitchcock movie. This is one of the better Alfred Hitchcock movies, I think. Cary Grant... Uh, stars as this account executive, this advertising executive who gets falsely accused for something he did not do. And he spends his entire, the entire movie running around in this gray suit. Um, it, it's very stylish, very fun, exciting, ends up hanging around on Mount Rushmore. This was the whole reason I wanted to visit Mount Rushmore as a kid. It's very well done. Super fun. No argument there. It's solid. Number 22 for me, Brad Pitt again, of <laughs> course. You knew he was coming back, folks. This time, actually, with Guy Ritchie. It's 2000's Snatch. This film is, again, the cast is incredible. Guy Ritchie, this is when he is deep in his bag of tricks, like his cinematography, his his sense for the sort of the the crime film and the comedy inside crime films is impeccable and snatch is one of the preeminent examples of that certainly some content caveats in there but what brad pitt does as a gypsy boxer in here is both hilarious and bad apple all at once i have not seen it so i cannot say anything i would like to disagree with this pick but since i can't see it i can't in good conscience do that just go to 20 number two (laughs) Number 21 for me, the classic Charlton Heston movie of all time. No, it's not Soylent Green. No, it's not Ten Commandments. It is Ben-Hur, one of the greatest sword sandal epics of all time. Yes, it does go on for quite a long time, but I think just the chariot race in the middle of it is worth the price of admission. It is super. It is one of the most defining uh, scenes in all of cinematic history. And there's a pretty good story wrapped around it too. And no horses were hurt in the making of the film. Theoretically. Theoretically. (laughs) (laughs) For all the, all the ways Paul's complains about having to spend too much time with me on the podcast. I know it's because he just needs those extra minutes to watch all of these four hours. That's exactly right. 50. Watch Zack Snyder's Justice League again. Number 21 for me was the second R-rated movie I ever watched. And that is The Shawshank Redemption. Oh, The Shawshank Redemption. This movie for me introduced me to Morgan Freeman and his impeccable voice. (laughs) 
and yet is a really interesting tale. Who would have thought that – I mean I was a young adolescent. I would have only been about 12 or 13 years old when I watched The Shawshank Redemption and it worked for me even then. I mean there's something about the storytelling when you can take you know, a, a, a kid from middle-class America and say, hey – You'll really like this film about a man in prison in like the 1950s. And yet I did. I did really like it. And I think it holds up really well for the the tale that it tells. Yeah. It was based on a Stephen King story, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So this is actually, I think, the, the best Stephen King movie that there is. Yeah, uh, I agree. Green Mile I, gets close, but Shawshank is the better one. I and it, and I think it has because of that twist at the end. You know, the tunnel behind Rita Hayworth posters, uh, or I guess it's probably Raquel Welch by the time it gets done. But um, it, I, it, it really does feel like the best of Stephen King. It feels like a great movie. Has some great character development. It doesn't feel, you know, in your mind these. Sometimes these R-rated movies don't feel like R-rated movies. This feels right. like it could have well been underneath that because the story is just so strong in its own. You don't yep. you don't think about the content. Um, number twenty for me, another movie that we have talked about before on this podcast that you did not like nearly as much as I did. This is a movie I forced you to watch. I think last Halloween, no, the Halloween before, Hubie the Halloween. The <laughs> the haunting best haunted house movie ever. It's super psychological. Uh, it is a really, really fantastic black and white G rated, honestly scary movie. Um, I love this movie a lot, and it, it's all about just what's going on in the mind of these characters and the scary things that happen in this house. Uh, there's really no content to speak of. It's just a fine, fine, scary movie. It's creepy. It speaks to things later on in my list. I don't <laughs> love it, but it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> Number 20 for me. I think we can all get on board with this one from 2017 again. Oh, oh my goodness. Secretly 2017 as I made this list is like <laughs> this year just got films. <laughs> Paddington 2, Paul. Oh, Paddington 2. This film kept creeping up on my list. This was the surprise film for me of all the films as I built my list and I kept sliding movies above and below and looking at Hey, where should this fall? Do I like this movie better than that movie? Is this rewatchable? Paddington 2 just is a delight of a film and it feels good and it's got fun moments. It's got enough self-awareness that it can take its quirkiness and and just make it endearing. One of the better – and this is saying something because he's really good, but one of the better Brendan Gleeson roles uh, in <laughs> – in cinematic <laughs> history, and he's a great actor, of course. We've talked about, uh, you know, of course, your favorite film with him that I, now I'm forgetting the title of that we talked about on here. Where he's oh, yeah, the Calvary. Calvary. Paddington 2. You're going to think, oh, this is a weird little kid's – go watch Paddington 2. It hits. Here's the thing. I don't – I I don't know. This is this is going to sound really strange. I don't think I've ever seen Paddington 2. And it does seem like a very odd selection here. It has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. There is something about this movie that 
is great. And the fact that it ranked for you above some of those other 2017 movies, Logan Thor Ragnarok, it does speak volumes for for kind of what this movie brings to the party. Really strange. A kid's movie and a sequel at that in your top 20. It's so crazy. weird. So weird. Didn't expect it. Number 19, speaking of kids' animated movies, this is my favorite Pixar movie by far. That would be Up. Up, yeah. Up, Up. Lands at number about 19. More than any other film on this podcast. I don't need to say anything more about it. It's great. Number 19 for me, 1976, Murder by Death. Oh, I'm so you happy it. you put that on your list. It's so good. It is so good. Again, you know, it's got one of uh, somebody I labeled as one of the best actresses of all time, Maggie Smith, Alec Guinness, David Niven, Peter Sellers. The humor in this film is ahead of its time and yet feels completely appropriate to the 70s also, which is saying something. Murder by Death slaps, as the kids say. It is a classic classic movie. I don't think that a lot of people have seen it, but it's one of my favorite movies. And I definitely considered putting it on this list. And then I thought, you know what? It's just probably, I I just probably, as much as I enjoy it, it's a little too lowbrow, a little too inside baseball. (laughs) I'm glad you put it on. No, I don't, I don't think so. I think it works. Number 18. Lowbrow in the seventies when it's delivered by British actors and actresses somehow doesn't feel as lowbrow though. Certainly it's not PC. (laughs) it's it's really it's really really funny number 18 for me maybe the quintessential action movie of all time die hard die Mm. hard wow oh my goodness he brings it this is this is a movie when you talk about watchability this is a movie that is watchable year after year time after time every christmas Super fun. Yeah. <laughs> the ultimate <laughs> discussion, whether it's a Christmas movie or not. I tell you what, it is a fun movie to watch. It is R rated, which kind of makes me a little bit upset because there's a lot of little swearing that goes on. And, and that makes me sad because it, it's so much fun otherwise. And, and it could be a fun movie for a lot of ages to see. But there you go. Alan Rickman, honestly, I think he deserves like a retroactive Oscar for his work here as the villain. He is, is one of the quintessential villains in moviedom. Yeah, one of the greatest villain actors of all time. In oh, yeah. Right there. I agree. Number 18 for me, the Lego Batman film. Paul, 2017. <laughs> Again. Again. 2017. What's up? Oh, my goodness. The Lego Batman movie, the pacing is tighter than tight. The jokes fly. It feels like more than one joke flies per second. Uh, the the references, I've listened to this movie so many times, it holds up even when you can't see the screen. When my kids watch it in the back of the van as I'm driving. The Lego Batman movie is the second best Batman movie of all time. You know, this brings to mind a podcast. We actually need to do the best years in movie history. We really do. Uh, number 17 for me, I'm going black and white again for this one. Another Cary Grant movie, Arsenic and Old Lace. It mm. is 
a hoot. Uh, it, it's obviously based on a very famous stage play. Cary Grant is perfect in this. As he tries to, to to rein in his his murderous old sweet aunts. It's it's really hilarious. It is it is super fun. It's one of those movies, honestly, that I think for for families who are looking to introduce their kids to black and white movies, dude. This is a fun one to see. It's great. <laughs> Such a great premise. Kids for movie night tonight. <laughs> ants murdering everything. Like, wait, like ants, the bugs? No, like your great aunt Edna. Burying them in the basement. Number 17 for me. Remember the Titans. <laughs> That's we a talked about this on a previous podcast. This movie has a lot to say, a lot to tell. But boy, a fantastic soundtrack, really powerful performance from Denzel Washington. This is one of those films where, you know, you see how they could have gone even darker than they did dealing with difficult subjects. And yet they are managed to do it in a PG way, in an uplifting and positive way. Remember the Titans. It's quotable. It's got some fun football sequences, some young up and coming actors. It's a good film. Number 16 for me, going to an all-time classic again. This was a Best Picture Oscar winner back in the 1960s, I believe. Um, That would be Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, Starring, of course, Alec Guinness is is a uh, very, very British commander. Um, We've talked about this actually in our previous podcast, so I don't think I need to go into too much detail, but it involves these uh, these British prisoners of war who build a bridge in Southeast Asia, I believe it's uh, Burma, um, and maybe do too good of a job doing it. Sir Alec Guinness, he brings it. Absolutely. Number 16 for me, we already talked about it. It's the Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers, the Battle of Helm's Deep, Say No more there you go there you go number 15 no surprise another christopher nolan movie on my list another superhero movie on my list it had to be the dark knight Mm. right you can't i can't go on a list like this without mentioning the dark knight i think probably the best superhero movie ever made a fantastic performance by Heath Ledger's Joker still think it's probably better than Joaquin Phoenix's performance as Joker I, it was very yes. definitive super exciting very dark really inspiring in an odd sort of way um it has everything that you want in a superhero movie except for you know a lot of laughs that's true crossover again not as not quite as close as our exact match at 23 with alien But I agree with you. It's the best Batman film of all time. The second best superhero film of all time, according to my estimation. I have it at number six. The Dark Knight is a great pick. Number 15 for me, Inside Out. Of course, this one gets brought up a lot. It brings Paul Paul and I back to our first crossover, cinematic crossover, where we started talking together. The Inside Out brought us together. We rescued. It's emotional. It's funny. It's one that I think about even just as I analyze myself. And that's why it ended up as high as it did, because I still think about inside out when I'm trying to analyze my kids, when I'm trying to analyze myself. Inside Out just keeps popping back up, and it's just fun to watch. Uh, I tell you what, there's a lot of depth in that movie. It is it is one of the 
most uh, most aspirational of Pixar's movies. Super fun to watch. And yes, it does make me nostalgic because you can point to Inside Out as the true seed of this entire podcast that has now gone on for 100 episodes. It's crazy. How could it not make the list? That's right. Number 14 for me is another Humphrey Bogart movie, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Oh, so good. This is sort of a quasi-Western, even though it takes place in like 1930s. And it essentially features Humphrey Bogart and a couple other people who go down to Mexico to dig up some gold. And it talks a lot about the corruptive power of gold, really, how you how you get this gold fever. It's a dark movie, extraordinarily well done, tackling some good, heavy subjects uh, that is also surprisingly fun to watch. I mean, when I think of Humphrey Bogart, you tend to think of him as one of these actors who just does Humphrey Bogart. He plays, he still plays Humphrey Bogart here, but it's a little bit against type and it really, really works. It's his best movie. Number 14 for me is my favorite Kung Fu film of all time. And that is Kung Fu Hustle. (laughs) Paul, you talked about how they can, Kung Fu movies can kind of feel like movies of yesteryear with their choreography and feeling like old-timey musicals, Kung Fu Hustle leans into that. Set in China in the 1940s, it's got the gangsters, it's got a little bit of swing to it, and yet it marries all of that with modern Kung Fu choreography and some Looney Tunes-type animation that somehow really works on a live-action setting. It's a funny film, and yet the Kung Fu in it is really close to being as fun as Eat Man, uh, and actually, it's probably more fun, even if it's less realistic. <laughs> Haven't seen it, so I cannot pass judgment, although I really want to. Number 13 for me, Lucky 13, Bringing Up Baby. Ultimate screwball comedy starring Cary Grant, Katherine Hepburn. Uh, it is super, super fun. This is one that my family and I actually come back to time and time again. Um, the the chemistry between Grant and Hepburn is just perfect. Uh, it really it really sort of embodies that that fast talking Howard Hawks type of movie uh, that involves some really quippy dialogue, some crazy scenes. Um, Hepburn and Grant have never been funnier. Uh, it's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, you need to. Number thirteen for me: The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, the one that started it all. So good. So quotable. I think that's something that's underappreciated about the Lord of the Rings films and the score. Oh, my goodness. You just start playing the score and I feel warm and fuzzy. It takes me back to my childhood. I think just the way Tolkien, it did for Tolkien, thinking about the Shire. The Fellowship of the Ring, number 13 for me. Number 12 for me. Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Rings. Hey, look at that. The best. Look at us. The best Lord of the Rings movie. We have talked about this on so many different levels. I think that it includes one of the best monsters of all time. The Balrog is Mm. just amazing. This is a movie that I saw as an adult, and it made me feel like a little kid when I was watching Star Wars or Raiders of the Lost Ark for the very first time. It, It really reminded me that I could, even as an adult, feel giddily silly about watching a movie again. It was pitch perfect. Loved it. My 11-year-old, I told him we could watch the movies when he read the books. He's reading Fellowship of the Ring right now. I'm getting excited. 
<laughs> Number 12 for me, Nacho Libre. Oh, I knew this was going to make your list. You knew this had to be there. One of the most quotable films of all time, 2006, another sneaky good year. This is a film that has only aged better in my own viewing experience. I think that's unique to some of Jared Hess's films is that the the more you watch them, the more you appreciate them, the more you quote them, the more they just ingrain themselves in your psyche. And that's why Nacho Libre ended as high as it did. Get that corn out of my football. (laughs) <laughs> it's really interesting that you have some of these some of these silly comedians make some really tremendous movies that can be pretty funny still too. Nacho Libre is one of those for Jack Black. You know, we talked about Secret Life of Walter Mitty with uh, Ben Stiller. Yeah. I always think of Stranger Than Fiction and, and oh, yeah. Will, Will Ferrell. Ferrell. I think that's a great movie. Yeah, Stranger um, Than Fiction. That's a top yeah. 100 for me. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Number 11 for me will go in a totally different direction here. Schindler's List. It is a hard movie to watch. It is a long movie to watch. But man, when I watched it, I thought Steven Spielberg has never made a better film. I have since changed my mind on that a little bit, as we'll get into. But I tell you what, Schindler's List, uh, it rips your heart out and stomps on it and makes you want to, you know, save a bunch of people all over again. You know, it's, it's just great. Number 11 for me, probably one of the more controversial. Even for me, I waffled with this one at number 11, but it means so much to me, and I think it really does stand up and hold up well, though we'll see if my kids agree. It's Toy Story 2. Mm. Toy Story 2 I remember so fondly. I really appreciate the humor, Buzz Lightyear, discovering more about himself. Of course, callbacks to The Empire Strikes Back. Paul, there's echoes of The Empire Strikes Back in Toy Story 2, and you know they did it on purpose. Woody struggling with immortality versus engaging with people, with humankind, with living life in the here and now. And what does it mean to live forever if you don't get to love forever, Paul? Toy Story 2, surprisingly poignant for how fun it is. So as I was telling my kids this list, we actually went and we looked at at Pixar movies, Toy Story 1, Toy Story 2, both 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Neither of them made my list, but man, they are good, good movies. And I think most people say Toy Story 2 is better than the original. And it's for those, those deeper messages. Pixar is just a master at putting together some really, really um, realistic messages in in these delightful kids movies it's crazy how they do that number 10 this was a pick that my kids booed at they hated the fact that i put this movie on here because they do not like this movie at all they are wrong 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 and that is high noon the quintessential Mm. western of all time gary cooper grace kelly featuring this grizzled old gunfighter who is about to meet his maker potentially uh, in this showdown with a bunch of people that don't like him. Uh, The buildup is incredible. There's a really annoying song that plays way too much. That is the only flaw in this movie. It is an excellently paced Western. As as we hit the top 10 here, I have to say one of the things I appreciate about this, not only are the moments of crossover, but the way we're building out each other's backlist even as we go. I've never seen High Noon. No, but number 10 for me is 
in my opinion, the greatest war film I've ever watched. And that is 1917. Uh, mm. This is from Sam Mendes. Uh, it is really unique um, in its simplicity. And yet there's a lot of complexity inside the simplicity. And that's what makes it worth coming back to. The cinematography is really good. And there is no film outside of The Lord of the Rings that makes me think of The Lord of the Rings as much as 1917 does. Of course, we know, maybe you don't know, but Tolkien conceived The Lord of the Rings in the trenches of World War I. And 1917 sinks us into that same setting. And I absolutely understand Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings in a whole new way after watching 1917 multiple, multiple times. 1917 is an excellent movie. And I think if we had stretched this out to the top 100, it definitely would have made my list. And we Number talked nine, about it on the podcast. Go back and listen. <laughs> Number nine for me, Star Wars, New Hope. Oh. Uh, the original Star Wars, there is nothing that captured my imagination as a child more than the original Star Wars. Going back, you look at some of the acting. Carrie Fisher and, and Harrison Ford did not put in their best performances in this movie. No, they're not and great. Yet it works. It just worked. It introduces us to characters that we have loved for low these many decades. Uh, I I really dug this movie so much that I made a whole cardboard playset of them which we've talked about on this podcast. I was going to say, one of our early episodes was Star Wars on its 40th anniversary. Yep, yep. So that's enough said. Star Wars New Hope, uh, it was my, it was really my first favorite movie, unless you can't count the cat from outer space, which didn't make the list. Explain, but that cat from outer space explains why Paul likes me, because I'm named Jake, the cat's named Jake. It was (laughs) Destiny. Destiny. 2014 at number nine for me, the Lego movie. It's Phil Lord. It's Christopher Miller. This is a film that slaps. It's corporate shilling that doesn't feel like corporate shilling. It's got a twist ending that'll pull your heartstrings. It's goofy. It's self-aware. It's selling Lego bricks and WB movies at every turn. And boy, is this meta just hit home for me at every level. And the story, I feel like I'm just that average Lego trying to make my way in a world trying to be remarkable when I feel so unremarkable. The Lego movie, number nine for me. Incredible. Two Lego movies in your top 20. Is that right? That's correct. It says volumes about something. We'll just move on from there. About number eight. Christopher Miller. <laughs> number eight for me, 12 Angry Men. This is another one of those movies that I think just has a brilliant conceit. It Almost the entire movie takes place in one room featuring 12 guys on a jury trying to figure out whether this guy is innocent or guilty. It stars Henry Fonda at his most Henry Fonda-ist, where he uh, he serves as this jury's conscience, essentially, and works the way through this case. It is it is a really well-crafted movie that requires for audiences that, that are used to a lot of explosions and gunfights in movies, it requires a little more patience, but man, that patience is rewarded. It's a yeah. great movie. I love a bottle episode. 12 Angry Men is a great bottle episode. Good film, strong film, makes a lot of top 100s. And it's a top 100 for me, so I'm glad you put it in there, even though it didn't make my top 50. Number eight. <laughs> For me, we already talked about it. I previewed it. It's Return of the King. Say no more. 
There you go. Number seven for me, the one of the <laughs> one of the funnest movies of all time, I think. The Princess Bride. Yes. The Princess Bride. It is almost a perfect movie in my estimation. It is so fun, so quotable, a delightfully um, snarky and yet fairy tale story all the way through. I, I dig this movie. It is one of those movies that if I ever have a chance to watch it, I will because it's just so much fun. Yeah, I'll never pass it up. It's at number five for me. So very, very close. I'm glad we both had that in the top 10. Number seven for me is The Winter Soldier. We talked about it earlier. So Paul, number six for you. Number six for me, Casablanca. Casablanca. Humphrey Bogart. That's fine. This is my third Humphrey Bogart movie. I just realized. Yeah, you're Bogarting now. Yeah, curses, man. Um, But it's it's a really sweet fun, strange movie that has a a surprising ending for what you think of in the 1940s. I think, you know, it's, it's really well done. It's one of those movies that was going to be certainly a failure. Uh, Bogart and and Ingrid Bergman hated working on it. There were rewrites every single day. No one thought it was going to do anything and it became a cinematic classic. It's fine. It's just fine. Number six though, for me, we already talked about that too. It's yeah, the Dark Knight, the second greatest superhero movie of all time, and the greatest Batman film of all time. Paul, what's for your number sure, five? for sure, for sure. Number five, Vertigo, Alfred Hitchcock, mm. Jimmy Stewart. It is a dark, strange, weird, disturbing movie. This very is slow burn. <laughs> very slow burn. Super slow burn. But it is really compelling in terms of its twists and turns. You think it's starting – it's a little like Knives Out in a way where you think it's starting off as this type of movie and then it becomes an entirely different sort of movie. And uh, it's it's thought of by many as Hitchcock's all-time classic. Um, I actually have a Hitchcock movie above this. Uh You're a a fanboy for the Hitchcock. I do love me some Hitchcock. So number five for me, Vertigo. Number five for me, Princess Bride. There you Ball go. Number four. Number four, Sunset Boulevard. Dark, gritty. Uh, talks about this old silent movie star who has suffered hard times and this relationship, that really disturbing relationship, she strikes with this author who comes to live with her. Um, when you think of black and white movies, you don't think of edgy. Sunset Boulevard feels kind of edgy. It may surprise you a little bit. Uh, it is very well crafted. Um, can't get enough of this movie. Number five, Sunset Boulevard. Or number four, number Sunset four, Boulevard. Number four, yeah. Cecil B. DeMille, Buster <laughs> Keaton. I mean, it's got it. It's got the oldies and the goodies. Number four for me, About Time. It was always Whoa. going to be about time Goodness. at number four. Uh, we've talked about this and the controversy in my own home over this film, and yet this still really gets it for me. Uh, and is and it's because of the fact that it's so it was so surprising. I'm not a romantic comedy fan as a rule, but I reviewed this one and it surprised me. As Paul has talked about before, sometimes when you review a film, you kind of hold it at arm's length. About time, slap my hand down and wrap me in a warm hug and then made me want to go hug everyone else. <laughs> the way it deals with parenthood, with being a child of a parent, with romance, with being a sibling, like it manages somehow to 
hit all of these family relationships in really poignant ways. Huh, about time. About time. Number three for me, the greatest, the greatest music of all time, Singing in the Rain. Can't get enough Singing in the Rain. Uh, we a whole episode on it. <laughs> That's how much Paul can't get enough of it. <laughs> yeah, I tell you, Gene Kelly, Debbie Reynolds. Uh, oh, it's just wonderful. It's super funny, really great, very memorable music numbers. It makes you feel happy watching it. Uh, never been a musical as good as this. La La Land, not even a candle to Singing in the Rain. It's a great movie. Number three for me, the most quotable film of all time. I quote it on a weekly basis. This week is no exception. It's 2004's Napoleon Dynamite. (laughs) Famously, I didn't like Napoleon Dynamite the first time I watched it. And then the next day found myself quoting it out of out of thin air with no pre thought to it just coming out of my mouth and was surprised by that. Watched it again, was like, what was I thinking the first time I watched this? I've watched it multiple times since then. Quote it all the time. It really lands. It speaks to the sensibilities of the time it came from. So I'll be curious to see how well it holds up for everyone else. Future generations, will my kids like it? I don't know. But for me, it's number three. Man, never seen it. Backlist. Ugh. Number two, Hitchcock. Rear Window. Mm. I may have been a little bit biased because I just watched The Woman in the Window that has a very rear window type of feel to it. The Woman in the Window is on Netflix. It's a very, very interesting movie that we may want to talk about in the future, Jake. Uh, It is – Rear Window is incredibly well-paced. It's a great – it's a great thriller um, starring Jimmy Stewart, Grace Kelly – um, I I kind of fell a little bit in love with Grace Kelly in this movie, I do have to admit. When I first saw it as a 15-year-old, um, it it is a just well-done Hitchcock. And again, it has a great conceit. It takes place all in one room, and you're just looking through binoculars at these other places. It's it's yeah. a great movie. Welcome. And, hall, and a hallmark of a great film is how many people send it up and – a lot of people send it up, even dumb comedy shows that you don't think of that would do it, like Raising Hope has a rear window <laughs> send up. So there you go. Number two for me, the number one superhero movie of all time from 2018. It's Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Should have known. Should have known. known. Love this all- movie. It, I love this movie, but I'm not the only one. Other people put this as the number one of all time. Not everybody. So I get to I get still be a little bit of a know-it-all here because not everybody puts it at number one. But the origin story, the way the animation flows, the way the action, the family relationships, the way this universe is set up and yet still feels like the perfect standalone superhero film, the comedic elements, the voice acting, it manages to bring in some really dramatic moments like where you're going to cry and marry it somehow with Spider-Ham, Spider-Pig by John Mulaney <laughs> and Nicolas Cage as Spider-Man Noir. The, the audacity of this film, uh, you know, you weren't sure if it was going to work. And yet it works and the villain's memorable. The heroes are memorable. The writing's good. The laughs are there. The action's there. I could watch this movie and I have watched this movie 
many, many times. <laughs> Another 2017 entry. Goodness that was 18, gracious. actually. That it was 2018. Oh, 18. Yeah. Mm, interesting. Sorry. Sorry. We have hit number one. Number one. Number one. I feel like we need to take just a quick breath before we dive into the greatest <sighs> movie of all time. That would be unquestionably Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> I am telling you, I as I was putting together this list, I felt like as I was, I I sort of pitted these films against each other, right? You yep. know, to say which is better, which I is worse. Uh, Raiders, from beginning to end, is just perfectly paced. Perfectly paced. You've had this great hero dealing with these terrible villains, these mass, these massive set pieces. Maybe the best opening sequence in all of film when when Indiana Jones is running away from the boulder. This is a, a takeoff on, of course, all those old nineteen thirties and forties serials. It feels fun. It feels well constructed. This is, I think. When you think about movies as movies, not necessarily as great art, um, even though this is great art, I think, this is the ultimate movie movie. It does everything you want a movie to do. It makes you laugh. It makes you smile. It gives you a thrill. You walk out of the theater feeling good. Raiders of the Lost Ark does it all. And you would know what it felt like to walk out of the theater watching it. I wouldn't. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. As, a, as an 11-year-old, I watched, walked out of there and thought, this was awesome. I have to say, I appreciate – this was unexpected for me. I, and I appreciate the fact that such a pop popular film would land at number one for you. <laughs> it was unexpected. I didn't expect it. I kind of <laughs> did think it would be a Hitchcock film or you know something black and white or – you know. Singing yeah, rain, I, perhaps. I have so never I had so much fun in a movie as as I had in in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's that's it's just as simple as that. And I mean, I saw it when I was eleven or twelve for the first time, and so it really hits for that demographic for sure. <laughs> Number one for me might be the most surprising on my list, other than Paddington Two. Uh, this film came out of nowhere for me. I did not like the trailer. Didn't think I was even going to watch it. Had to watch it for uh, the video podcast that we did prior to Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know It All and was surprised at how much I liked it. Ran into it again randomly at a hotel. Found myself watching the entire thing when I needed to be going to sleep. It's the film that even after I watched it a third time, I'm sitting here thinking I probably need to watch it this weekend just because I enjoy it so, <laughs> so much. And it's from 2015. It's from George Miller. It's Mad Max Fury Road. Oh my <sighs> word. It is just stunning. That's it has interesting. a fantastic opening sequence. Like when you just start going through the elements, fantastic opening sequence, really compelling primary character that is not even, you don't even think is the main character at first in in uh, Fury, Imperator Furiosa, Charlize Theron, I think one of her greatest roles. And she's a fantastic actress. The, the message that it has to tell the insane visuals, it's, absolutely bonkers mad max fury road start to finish it's thoughtful it's poignant 
The dialogue, what little there is, really hits. The action is bananas. Mad Max Fury Road, number one on my list. I'm going to go watch it right now. I'm going to skip work and go watch it. (laughs) You're going to skip work and watch it. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. It really is a great movie. It didn't make my top 50, but it is an outstanding movie. So I totally get it. Totally get it. There you have it, the official pop culture with fanboy and know-it-all. Top 100 cinematic experiences of all time. It's definitive. It's in the books. Paul and I's minds are going to change, but now we're on the record. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to have to have a – if we are doing this in episode – if we're still doing podcasts when it comes down to episode 200, we may have to revisit this. That's true. See where our minds have changed. Because I I looked at this almost every – I made this list about five days ago, and I revisited it every night. And there was something I flip-flopped, changed, shifted almost every night. No, it's it's this is a very malleable list. It just changes depending on your mood. And I know that there are movies that we've even forgotten that we love that would have been on this list had we remembered them. That's true. So. I mean, what about Bob? Where was what about Bob? <laughs> yeah. I'm saying that to myself. I didn't I didn't put it in the top 50 for me, but so good. What is your like what's your quibble with us? Where did you love it? What were the dark horses that you're glad to see make our top 100? What are the ones, the travesties that we left off? We want to hear your opinions on Twitter, on our blog. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. But now it's time for the most least important thing. Here we are in the most least important thing, the way we love to wrap up every single show of ours, making mountains out of molehills and vice versa. Paul is going to dive first into the molehill. Here we go. This is it. This was a shocking development. Um, Ironically, this happened. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll lead up to that. I was shocked to learn, and I think that there may be some sort of nefarious plot involved with this. I learned that uh, Chick-fil-A is running out of sauce. Oh, no. They're running out of sauce. Apparently, there's some some issues with their supply lines because of COVID and whatnot. Um, and, and so they're not giving out as many packets of sauce with their chicken nuggets as they used to. I don't know why so many of my most least important things have to do with fast food. But there you go. Um, ironically... At the same time that I was reading this, I discovered that my very own supermarket sold like these big old containers, these pint-sized containers of Chick-fil-A sauce. Oh, really? I I immediately bought them in the store. Because Chick-fil-A sauce may be the best sauce ever made. Honestly, it is really, really good. So I immediately bought it, then read that there was a sauce shortage and I'm wondering what what's going on here. I don't understand. Is there some sort of weird discrepancy? Um, is there some sort of plot involved? Is the Illuminati involved? Why can you buy these huge v- containers of it at the supermarket, and yet Chick Fil A itself cannot give you more than one sauce packet per That's item? True. I have. I don't understand. I haven't delved into this, uh, but I, I did hear even a couple of months ago that I think it was uh, Heinz had a shortage of ketchup packets. 
So I think it's got something to do with the actual packaging of it. Because mm. from what I was hearing, it wasn't the bottles. It wasn't the ketchup. It was ketchup packets. Something to do with all the fast food that everyone's eating because they're doing less dine-in. They're hitting up the drive through a little bit more. And it's creating a run on the packets for some reason. Uh, though it's funny when it comes to Chick-fil-A sauces, even before the pandemic for years – my biggest complaint with Chick-fil-A has been how stingy they are with the Chick-fil-A packets where I'll go and order for my family. And like, we all want Chick-fil-A sauce. Give us a lot of Chick-fil-A sauce. And like a lot of Chick-fil-A sauces, they give us like one per person and they give us one extra. And then you're like, no, no, no. I meant like three per person. All right. I'm going to need one for my sandwich. I'm going to need two for my fries, one to drink later. Like hook me up. Why is that Chick-fil-A sauce so good? What did they put in that? I mean, I, I think it's just barbecue sauce and honey mustard, but it's just oh, it's, the right blend of it, you know? It is so good. So good. Mm. Yeah. I'm there with you. Keeping in uh, line with having nothing to do with your most least important thing, <laughs> but everything to do with history. Steph Curry in the NBA, as the NBA season has wrapped up, he locked down the scoring title, Paul, this season, which now puts him in elite company as the only basketball player other than Michael Jordan to have been the scoring champion at the age of 33 or older. And really? Yep. Wow. Only Michael Jordan and Steph Curry, not Kobe Bryant, not LeBron James. It's Le- it's Michael Jordan and it's Steph Curry. It also puts him in the rarefied air of Michael Jordan, Wilt Chamberlain and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as only the fourth player to ever have in a career multiple scoring titles, multiple MVPs, and multiple championships. The dude is amazing. The dude is amazing. However, at, at this point in time, I don't think they voted for the NBA MVP. It's got to be Jokic, right? Oh, I mean, everybody's God. talking about Jokic because he's had a great season. As far as most valuable, though, it's hard to argue about the fact that Steph Curry has carried the entire Warriors team on his back into the NBA play-in tournament. That may be true, but but Jokic Joker, just has a great season. You're right. Joker is averaging a triple-double right. pretty much. Man, oh, man, I tell you what, that guy has been on fire, and he seems like one of the nicest guys in the NBA. Not that Steph Curry is a, a jerk. You know, he's clearly a quite nice guy too. But, but I tell you, he, uh, Steph Curry has had a season for the ages for sure. But Joker, uh can't vote against him man well it's it's hard it's hard for us to hate the big goofy soft guy yeah. who does not look like he belongs in the nba at all he looks like a, a james bond heavy right <laughs> he looks like, like bad sort of like heavy. <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly but yet he's a really great basketball player there you have it that is it for us this time thank you so much for joining us on this journey 100 episodes paul i love it I'm excited about it. I love that it feels like we're on the cusp of something great and I'm entering the upper echelon with our official definitive top 100 movies of all time list. It just feels like that's next level and I'm excited about it. Yeah, I think we also set the record for the longest podcast in our history. That's true. That's true. But it so was we'll, worth it. 100 it was worth it. We, we did it now, Paul. You've done your list. You've made it. <laughs> You've arrived. I can die a happy man now. <laughs> that's all for us this time we appreciate you joining us each and every time we appreciate you 
And uh, until next time, you can catch us up. Catch up with us on Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I am at AC Paul. We'll catch you on the flip side. Bye. So you know what I want to do? Yeah. I've been watching these old serials. I want to do like an old – I want to make a movie. I want to do like an old serial type of movie with stop action monsters. Okay. I want to do this. I don't exactly know how to do it. I don't even know if you can do stop action on an iPhone, but man, I think it would be super fun. Um. Saying stop action, like stop motion? Yes. It can be done. I've, uh, I have, I've done it pseudo, I've done pseudo stop motion with Jeremiah. There was one day where we had this a couple years ago where he really got in trouble for a lot of stuff and he missed out on a fun family outing. He and I stayed home, but then we had these. They're made by Lego, but they have joints. They're bigger mm-hmm. characters. And so we just – I was like, we're going to do – like to have fun because it's like you get no screen time. But I was like, we can do this photo shoot. And so we just were taking them and trying to create all the – because they're very posable. It's like what – and they're one Stormtrooper, one Rebel. And what can we do to make it uh, look – do some cool photos. And we did try some stop motion and, you know, for – Working with a five-year-old and or six-year-old or whatever he was at the time, <laughs> we were able to come up with some decent stuff. It's possible. That's pretty cool. All right.